Hi, welcome to the Express Results Bulletin for Season 2, Episode 5. And following my plea to get a few more votes at the end of the last episode, it has actually paid off. So the voting numbers were back up this week. Yay for that. So in last place, earning minus one point for the 2000s, it is Escape by Enrique Iglesias. Oh, you gave this one a very hard pass. Nobody put it in their top three. We've got some comments. Mark says, Enrique's determination to be an utterly charmless, if multilingual, version of Brian Adams earns him the wooden spoon. While James, Centres of Sound, says, all the worst quirks of early 2000s pop thrown in with the kitchen sink, plus Enrique's characterless, mannered vocals. Hard nope on this one. In the bin. While Alex says... Perhaps it's brutal to place this behind Mike Sarn, but the early 1960s were floundering around doing the best they could before the Beatles came along and sorted things out. Whereas Enrique had the benefit of decades of great music to build upon, unlimited resources, incredible technology and global exposure. And this is what he came out with. Well... I did call this the dullest tune we've ever had on the podcast. I'm pleased to see that our listeners have also rejected it. Did I give this one a bit of a kick in? Because all I can remember from the last podcast is me getting lost in my discussion about Rihanna. And the only point I wanted to make about Rihanna was it's not Rihanna's music I don't like. It's the fact that everybody asked for Rihanna five times a second throughout my entire life. And I, and I took 48 minutes to not even manage to make that point. You gave Enrique a right old kicking. And if ever we do a compilation of favourite rants of all time in the history of the podcast, that is in there. So no one's mentioned that to me, but I have had a steep increase in the amount of comedy people asking for Rihanna. But I'm <laughs> again, well, this is clearly a byproduct of that. The perils of the role. Right into the Met Zone. First up in the Met Zone, representing the 1960s, we have come outside by Mike Sarn, or Sarni, if you will, with Wendy Richard. Well, this didn't actually do an awful lot better than Enrique, because only one person put it in their top three, and that was Malcolm the Break Doctor. And he says, It's not often that I share Trevor's desire to be transported back to the 60s, but this was one of those songs. Ironic, really, given he felt the opposite this week. A very enjoyable, disposable novelty record from a different universe. Jeff says, I hate Mockney. His singing is dreadful. And this reminds me of 60s TV comedies that should never see the light of day again, like On the Buses. Alex says, very few redeeming features, just about avoids last place, but a very close thing. The remake with Mike Berry, not so much. And then Alex adds, I'm not sure you picked up on the fact that the singer Mike Berry, this was the 80s revival singer, he played the character of Mr. Spooner for a season or so in Are You Being Served? So this was a rubbish tie-in slash cash-in, aside from being a rubbish cover of a rubbish song. None of us spotted that, Alex. Thank you. This is why we have commenters. Good spot. Also in the Met Zone, representing the 2010s, it's Rihanna with Where Have You Been? Now, we've got a comment here from Hedgerow. Welcome to the podcast, Hedgerow. He says, this song overstays its welcome by trying to be a dance mix when all you want is the radio edit. There's just not enough song there to be a pop song and doubling the length to be EDM is just not a process I can condone. Alcum says, 
Not one of my favourite Rihanna numbers. A bit bland and over-EDM'd by someone who just discovered how to use side chaining on a DAW. Well, James says, never heard this before. The first half did not impress me much. Fairly generic stuff. But then the second drop. Bosh! Brilliant! Love the beat. Love the squelch. Love the intensity. Love, in capitals, the cut-up vocals. Now, that was an interesting comment there from Malcolm, technically. I like it when people get technicals. I, I know nothing about the actual making of music. So I didn't know what side chaining was, and I didn't know what a DAW was. I've done research. DAW is a digital audio workstation. And I've watched a whole video that explains what side chaining is. Not to the extent I could actually explain it to any of you. Did you know what side chaining was? Trav, you sometimes do a remix or two. I was so hoping I was going to get out of jail there. I was like, oh, thank God, Mike is going to say what it is. Because I'm like, oh, that is a term I am familiar with, but I don't know. (laughs) All right. It's kind of like this. You've got your kick drum and you've got your bass. But if you just have the kick drum and the bass on top of each other, it makes the production sound muddy. So side chaining is you link one of those sounds automatically up to the other one. So when the kick drum kicks in, momentarily, the bass goes down in volume and then it bounces back up again as the kick drum fades. And that way you've got a clearer, crisper sound. That's essentially side chaining. Uh, Well, that would be uh, why all my stuff doesn't sound very good because I don't know what that is. And it sounds like something that would be really useful. Instead, I just chuck it in there. And it sounds like soup. I think, speaking of records that sound like soup, I think Kylie's Padum Padum could do with a bit of side chaining. Because when I've played it out, it's weirdly muffled. There's a little bit of that at the moment, though. There's a few sort of, you know, the at dance end of things where I'm not sure that the vocals sound as clear, for example, as they could do. But I also think that the bigger sound systems you play on, the better those things sound. Mm. Um, you know, we're reaching a little bit of a moment now. You know, they are, the, the goal of production is for it to sound great on anything. But I guess if you're making a club record, you're going to be inclined to go, well, you know, the priority should be the club. For me, Drill sounds like it's produced to sound good on mobile phones, which makes it sound awful on any other system. I, I mean, I'm not the key demographic of Drill, but that's that every single drill track's got on it is because you sat in a playground listening to it on your mobile phone, which has terrible quality anyway. So, you know, people are doing that, making things for specific sound systems. So maybe it's that. I remember an interview with Heaven 17 back in the 80s, and they said that when they sort of got a kind of master version of a song ready, they would actually play it back on really crummy AM transistor radio type speakers to check it was going to sound okay on AM radio. So I think that, that's always been around. But I say this Rihanna track's grown on me a bit. Because after I watched the video on side chaining, I gave it another listen and I thought I gave it more of a sort of technically minded listen. I was listening for the side chaining and I, I can sort of appreciate the textures in the production a lot more. And yeah, totally agree with James. It's all about the second drop. The second drop really makes the song. If this is the most interesting thing about that song, it's no bloody wonder it's in the mess zone. <laughs> well, when we get to the next episode, we have got two drops to talk about. Ah, little teaser for you there. Another little teaser. 
Trev really can't wait for us to get to the next episode. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> this is going to be like if Love Changes Everything by Climbing Fisher came up. It's that equivalent to Trev. I will tease you no further. I will go straight to the top three. Now, at this point, massive jump in the scores, but only one point separated second and third places. So in third place, earning one point for the 1970s, it's Lady Eleanor by Lindisfarne. Now, David, he's kind of referring to the fact that some of us felt that we'd played Friday Arm in Love too often. He kind of took issue with that as a fair judging criteria. But he went on to say, if I've overplayed anything, it's Lady Eleanor, which I bought when it was re-released. Love Lindisfarne, saw them, and even bought the songbook for their first two albums. The chords were surprisingly easy. James says, on paper, this is right up my street, but it somehow leaves me unmoved. I keep thinking it's going to turn into Lady Rachel, or for some reason, this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. And then it doesn't. Pedro says, the Lindisfarne was also pleasant. Yes, anything illuminated manuscript adjacent will contract tween us, but that has its place in pop too. I should just add that reference to the song Lady Rachel. That is an album track by my great all-time musical hero, the criminally underrated progressive rock singer-songwriter Kevin Ayers. And I know James is really into Kevin Ayers too. And I really nearly added it to my list of pop ladies in the last episode. So I'm glad that James did it for me. Other than that, Bit disappointed with the listeners' reaction to Lindisfarne. There were other comments that didn't make the cut that were saying, oh, no, it's all fingers and ears and flagons of mead and folds and roll, Lady Guinevere. How can you be disappointed with someone else's opinion? I mean, music's subjective, but subjective opinion. Ah, I'm disappointed with that. You should fairly well get into folk music. Well, some of us work very hard to get over our lifetime genre prejudices. And I genuinely think that whatever genre which is Lady Eleanor is a wonderfully accomplished piece of music. And that's why I was disappointed that people kept within their pre-existing genre prejudices. Well, your biggest predisposition is against EDM. And again, spoiler alert for the next episode. Let's see what happens. Listeners, tune in and see if Mike, because if he does, he's going to need ketchup to eat his words, I am telling you. Listen, the longer you talk about it, the slower we'll get to it. <laughs> I should also say, I am heavily going to lean into the argument that I thought this song was going to turn into something I liked and then it didn't. Mm-hmm. You know this Lady Eleanor, halfway through, I thought it was going to turn into This Time I Know It's For Real by Donna Summer. And do you know what? It didn't. And I was disappointed. <laughs> I love this. I'm going to use this argument forever. So, this leaves us with two records. And if you remember, these two records were neck and neck at the end of the last episode, when we tasked you with evaluating the relative merits of Tight Fit and The Cure. This you have done. And I can now reveal that in second place, just one point ahead of Lindisfarne, and earning two points for the 1980s, It's Fantasy Island by Tight Fit. Tim says, this has to be high, even if only because my wife overheard it and instantly went into the dance routine she and her twin had created for it, aged 11. Mark says, on the one hand, Tight Fit were a terrible, terrible thing. The singles before this are pretty unforgivable sonically or ethically or both. And this is, as you guys informed us, a second-hand Eurovision fail qualifier with... 
as maybe you didn't mention, a title borrowed from a then-current hit TV show that also is not dissimilar to a recent Bucks Fizz number one. On the other hand, it's not actually bad at all. Right, Alex says, I did vaguely remember the chorus from back then, but this was a bit of a revelation to me. What a great bit of urgent 1980s chart pop. And I can't believe that this didn't enjoy any form of afterlife or conversions via subsequent chart acts. I guess they were just seen as too naff and the lyrics are a bit wet. I almost put it top, but for that and the way the bridge sort of fizzles out. Then Alex at a side note. Matters arising on the ABBA discussion. As you pointed out, around this time, the Swedes had suffered this sudden and catastrophic fall into perceived naffness that seems incredible now. It was in 1982 that we saw the release of The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole, for which Sue Townsend decided that the favourite band for our dweeby and credibility-free hero should be... Good spot from Mark there on there also being a TV series called Fantasy Island. It's an American series. I guess it must have been shown on British TV. But I didn't know it existed. It crossed my mind, but then I had that much to ramble on about Rihanna at a later point that I just didn't bring it up. Uh, so, yeah, thank you. I like it when our listeners make the catch that we fail, basically. There's been a lot of that this episode. Good. It's good. We welcome it. It's the old, plane, the plane. It's that one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The little Herve Villeneuve yeah. thing and stuff. Mike shaking his head. Did you never watch? Even I watched Fantasy Island. This is clearly a blank for Mike. Generational thing. Was it for kids? I think it was a team sort of bracket, wasn't it? It feels to me like sort of Saturday tea time, like that and Kung Fu and, you know, that sort of era. Well, I was 20 at this stage and none of us watched much TV. It was seen as not a cool thing to do. You were too busy listening to anarcho proto punk i had a lot of crass singles i'll have you know <laughs> yes I, I was reading the liner notes to crass singles rather than watching imported oh, so I, I was talking about the type of anarcho proto punk that you like such as the darts shawaddy waddy right right i've been listening to the millionaires version of this as well which is also great in a slightly more upbeat and chipper and less trendy way but yeah. it's also very catchy yeah yeah. Oh, I'm just going to decode the other thing that Mark said in his comment, the similarity of the title. The Bucks Fizz number one that he mentions, well, that has to be Land of Make-Believe, which I suppose could also be a fantasy island. Yeah, but Land of Make-Believe is an anti-Thatcher record. So one gathers. I'm not sure Bucks Fizz knew it was an anti-Thatcher record. A bit like Steps not knowing they were singing sad songs. I feel I've read about this in a book yeah. What was that book called? 101 yeah. Forgotten Hits of the 1980s by, don't tell me, mm. it's by, n- n- it's in, it begins with an N. Enrique Iglesias. <laughs> Thank you, Nick Parkhouse, for the punchline to that. <laughs> All right. This just leaves one record, which is absolutely straight ahead of the voting. One of the most convincing winners we've ever had. Only one voter didn't put this one in their top three. And who was that voter? Why? It was our very own Nick Parkhouse. So, earning the maximum three points for the 1990s, we have Friday I'm In Love by The Cure. Hedgerow says, I'm a fan of the band, not rabid, but sincere. And this is one of their best pop songs in a catalogue that had plenty more. I'd probably rank In Between Days as their best in that category. 
And it's a good song in general. No, it's not the first one I reach for. And here in the States, it doesn't suffer from overplay. REM stand or shiny happy people do get the skip when they come up, but perhaps because they do seem made for the Sesame Street audience. Friday I'm in Love doesn't seem down to the audience in the same way. Mark says, I'm always rather impressed by the way that The Cure managed to maintain parallel careers as a pop group and as a miserablest album and live act. You couldn't pay me to listen to Faith or Disintegration the whole way through, but as a singles band, they were great, and this is great. James says, my Cure fandom goes like this. 1978 to 1980. Love Cats. In between days. Close to me. Friday, I'm in love. These are all wonderful, but I have not found anything outside this shortlist that grabs me the same way. The best thing about Friday, I'm in love is the way the bridge works like an extra double chorus, ramping up the joy just at the right moment. I can only think of a few songs that do this, and they are all favourites. I also want to mention Steve Wright, who I heard playing this on a Tuesday afternoon in Capitals. Great trolling, Steve. I remember once that Robert Smith was invited to Smash Hits to review the singles. They occasionally used to get like a guest reviewer interview the things. And there was a Cliff Richard single. I don't know which one it was out that week. And I vividly remember him saying, they say Cliff Richard's the Peter Pan of pop, you know, that he's ageless and timeless. He said, if I looked like that when I was 45, I'd have killed myself. <laughs> Being about to kill himself is kind of Robert Smith's lifetime stock in trade. I'd say I'm basically with James on his cure picks. I'm also very, very sporadic in my cure love. But I would, I would add a couple of tracks. I'd add "Let's Go to Bed" and "The Walk," both singles from the early '80s, and I'd have to add "Lullaby" from the late 1980s. But yeah, that really early '78 to '80 period, my favourite Cure album is still the first one. Three Imaginary Boys came out in 1979, and I was lucky enough to see them play most of it at the Marquee Club in London, March 1980, about three weeks before A Forest came out as the lead single from the second album. They finished the set with A Forest, but we all knew it because John Peel had been playing it for a while. Other memorable thing about this gig was um, at the end of it, Robert Smith said, I hate saying things like, you've been a lovely audience, but... You've been the lovely audience. And he smiled. Were they supporting the darts? Is that why you remember it? I went to see them as headliners, because I was cool. Right. Master scoreboard time. So, last week's losing decade, the 1960s, has moved up one place from six to fifth equal. Still with one point. And it is joined in equal fifth place by the 2000s, dropping from fourth position last week. In fourth position, second equal last week, 2010s, three points. Third position, second equal last week, 1970s with four points. Up two places from number four to number two, we have the 1990s with five points. But still ahead, still with a six-point lead, 11 points now, we've got... The 1980s. Things are looking like a sealed deal for the 1980s because we're now exactly halfway through the scoring for season two. Who won the first season? 60s. How the mighty have fallen. It's been a tough fixtures list, really, for the 60s. I wonder what the next episode will give us. Those of you rooting for the 60s to do a bit better, come back in a few days. 
and we will have the next episode ready for you. I'm going to say goodbye very, very quickly so we can get on to talking about one of Trev's absolute favourite records of all time. Goodbye.